I'm uh, very pleased to welcome Carolyn Tolbert uh, to the Shorenstein Center. Uh, Carolyn has been involved in, um, in thinking about media, new media, and uh, the digital, uh, you know, the, the world of digital citizenship in all of its political and media-related uh, uh, applications. She has just is it just like literally just been published the uh, December 210 okay December 210 a new book on why Iowa has emerged as such an important player in the political process the character Shorenstein Center the name of the Shorenstein Center is the Shorenstein Center on press politics and public policy and we spend an awful lot of time on the press part of our title and we spend you know not enough time probably on the politics part of our time. Uh, Carolyn spans both, and we're very glad to have you with us. Well, so. Thank you. Um, yes, when I was making this very short slides for this talk, I realized that maybe you all would be wanting to hear about why Iowa. When I, uh, um, I was driving in, a, a taxi driver was driving us back from a canceled flight after spring break, and kids were in the back seat. I have three kids and the taxi driver said, well, where do you live? And we explained and then he turned and predictably said, well, why Iowa? And they just broke out in this uh, in laughter because that is the question that we always get, but also the question about um, the presidential nomination process. And maybe I can talk a little bit about that um, later on um, because it is a story about the media and um, how the media drives the importance, increasing importance of Iowa in picking presidents and especially um, new media and the internet and in creating what we argue is a punctuated equilibrium. Sounds like a very scholarly academic yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> although, although, if you read, I couldn't agree more. Although, if you read it, um, my I have uh, two co-authors. Um, David Radlowski is at Rutgers University, and Todd Donovan is at Western Washington University. And if you read it, you will find um, a story that has that caucus, uh, retail politics in your living room feeling. Um, and I think it's why uh, Chicago was really interested in it because I think it can cross over, um, a crossover type of law. So let me um, talk to you a little bit about uh, the internet and politics. It obviously is a gigantic subject and I've been working on it for a long time. Um, I have to tell you a teeny story. I was an assistant professor um, at Kent State University. Um, now I'm at the University of Iowa. And a colleague of ours from Library and Information Sciences came Dawson said, would you consider working with me on a collaborative project on this issue of unequal access to the internet? Um, and that was something that at that time our book, our first book, Virtual Inequality Beyond the Digital Divide, came out in 2001. Um, Pippa Norris's book um, came out the exact same year. Those were the two first books that really were looking at that subject in that way. Um, and what we argued in that book, and we used um, extensive uh, survey data where we had um, surveyed um, high poverty census, uh, census tracts across the United States to create this sample, um, revealed the contours of the digital divide that um, the poor, um, racial and ethnic minorities, those with lower education, and at that time a gender divide, women compared to men, um, we're much more likely to use the internet um, and use it for political information, use it for economic, to look for jobs, um, at work. But we also uh, revealed a parallel skills divide um, in a, a, a lack of skills, technical skills, 
typing, searching for information online, um, computer-related skills, but also literacy skills that parallel that same divide. And our argument was that the digital divide is not just about hardware and software and wiring and computers, but it's about the skills necessary to use the technology for effective use. Um, it turned out that Microsoft Corporation got a hold of this book before it had even been published. This was in 2000. And we had a series, this is the corporate giving arm of Microsoft. And so here at Kent State, this assistant professor, was sitting in all of these conference calls with my colleagues and all of the head kind of people at Microsoft Corporation, and they were restructuring their corporate giving so that instead of just giving money to wire schools and for, for computers and for the wiring. They then set up a parallel um, system for Boys and Girls Club and other nonprofits to provide the technology skills needed for effective use. And they used our book as the model um, for that. So anyway, I had lunch with Gary King yesterday, who's over in political science. I don't know if you know him, um, but he has done quite a bit of interesting work in this area, and he told me, you should tell them about that interesting story about Microsoft, because I often forget um, that that was partly how we started. Um, so since then, and not too far after that, I was, um, some of my work looked at um, the role of the internet, um, people who were reading online news, and what effect that had on whether they would vote um, and were interested in politics, participate in politics, give money, attend meetings, all sorts of measures that I might say political scientists would measure political participation. Um, and we, we published an article that was very, very early on, one of the first showing that controlling for all other factors, individuals who were regularly using online news were more likely to vote and participate in politics in other ways. And we tried to deal with what we might call endogeneity problems, that you know people who are reading online news have all these characteristics, that is, that they're educated and wealthier and, and, and white, et cetera. And so we used statistical models from that time that were appropriate to, to try to deal with that. So part of the story is that we've known for a long time that, um, that there appears to be a link between the people who use the availability of political information online and what they do offline. Um, in terms of political participation, and we've continued to study this in many ways, um, even showing that people who were originally low interested in politics or had moderate levels, if they were exposed to extensive online information, could become mobilized. We saw this with the, we have panel survey data, so it's wonderful we can track. This panel data tracks the exam, exact same people over the course of an election. So we had a very large sample of 20,000 respondents in the 208 presidential election um, where they were interviewed repeatedly six times. Um, and we could see what they did online, what they did offline, what their levels of information were. And we could see the low interested or moderate interested in politics becoming mobilized, um, especially by some of the techniques of the Obama campaign um, and the extensive online mobilization um, campaign. And why that matters is that I am a scholar of American politics. American politics and media in lots of ways, but not international relations. And I look to my colleagues who study international relations as kind of, oh, I don't know, if you like an economist or somebody who is different. <laughs> However, all of a sudden, there was this phenomena of WikiLeaks and 
the State Department candles, that it wasn't actually reading them on the website. It was all of the mainstream media discussing them and picking them up and all the blogs and the Twitter and the Facebook and this whole movement. Um, and I knew from what I had known from 10 years previous that information can create political engagement and political change. And so um, what we have seen in Egypt and in other countries is actually following similar patterns as what we saw right here in the United States, really starting with the, the 19, um, 1988 presidential election. Um, so that's all fine and good, except there's a little problem. Um, and that's something that we have cared about a lot. And I want to show you a little bit. Actually, let me show you if I can make this come up. Let's see if I can make it. Oh. So one of the, and that's probably too small, but I'm just going to show you a little bit. Um, one of the problems is, is that if everyone had access to the internet and what we call effective could effectively use the internet. And for us, we define this as digital citizenship. And digital citizens need to be able to use the internet every day. And they need high-speed access. And I have students in Iowa, in my classes, who come from rural areas of Iowa where there isn't high-speed, where there is only dial-up. And you cannot purchase a plane ticket using Orbit orbits with dial-up access in rural Iowa. You, you can't. And many, many other sites you can't use. They don't have effective use in terms of the speed. And obviously, a digital citizen needs um, skills. And using it daily, with high-speed access creates skills. These things are packaged together. Um, <coughs> Our 2008 book, Digital Citizenship, and I'm going to talk about that a little later in the slides, but it does make two major points that individuals who are digital citizens who have daily and effective access to the internet um, have higher rates of civic engagement, interest, knowledge, but especially political participation, so that there is a spillover effect um, on the community. It's more than just to the individual. There's an externality for society as a whole. There's a benefit. Um, but additionally, that individuals who use the internet at work and use it daily um, have higher wages, even those that have a high school degree or less. In fact, the age difference controlling for all, I mean the wage difference controlling for all other factors is $100 more per week. So there are real economic benefits that accrue to the individual in terms of politics, but also in terms of dollars and jobs and money. There are also benefits in a Putnam sense that accrue to communities, right? To in terms of stronger, e stronger communities, stronger politics, and stronger economic um, opportunities, development, economies in areas with better internet access. So this is one thing that we are increasingly interested in. Our current book is called Digital Cities. I'm going to show you just a teeny sneak peek preview of some of this and the implications for politics. Um, we can think of broadband access, <coughs> and I'm and just very important. The federal government asked all of the t uh, telecommunications companies to tell them what areas of the country they covered. They called that broadband mapping. Okay, 
So the telecommunications companies reported, we don't cover these areas of rural Iowa, we don't care about these areas of rural Nebraska, et cetera, but we do cover these area, these other areas. What our data does, which is very, very different, is we map where people use the internet. So in Chicago, the entire city may have broadband access, but our data shows that only 50% of Chicagoans have broadband at home. They're not use is very different than availability. Um, and so that is a huge part of, of our story. So anyway, this can just show why broadband matters, these spillover effects for economics and politics. Um, this is if you have broadband at home is the second column. And this is what we call the less connected. Slow, um, this is dial up or no internet at home. And this is um, from a, a Pew survey in 209 that was just funded by the, the FCC to evaluate uh, national broadband. And you can see these huge differentials in the far right column in terms of whether you use the internet to get information to apply for a job, um, use e-government to look for an, uh, do online banking, um, use it to read national news, visit a local state or federal government website, local community information. Um, <coughs> so what we call the less connected um, are, is this column, and there's large disparities. Less connected, by the way, would include for us um, mobile users, uh, mobile internet users who have them on mobile devices. Turns out that one of the fastest growing markets for mobile users are the young and racial and ethnic minorities because they don't have internet access reliably any other way. Um, other reports, but our data as well, shows that mobile devices are very useful um, for quick information, for uh, emails and telephone calls, entertainment, gaming, social networking, Facebook, Twitter. They are not, though, used extensively for what we call economic opportunity, applying for a job online, filling out the form, using monster.com, or political participation, reading online news, and, and participating in politics in the same way. So for my, I have given this talk before, and I have some wonderful alumni board members of political science who head companies who do ads on the internet, they tell me about those mobile devices. They're going to solve it. And we would tell you that the mobile devices won't solve it. Um, yeah. What's a tablet? What is a tablet? Is it a mobile device? No, no, this is an interesting question about the <coughs> iPad um, and how the iPad um, that is moving in between this little mobile device and what we would call a laptop. And depending on what happens with the, with the market, this is actually all driven by suppliers of broadband, I can tell you a little quick story, um, <laughs> will depend on you know, where the tablet will fill, will provide, will fill in in the middle. Because I do think that the iPad <coughs> with the bigger bigger screen may have may have the potential. It doesn't have a keyboard in the same way. But it is a news reader. It is a news reader. Um, one thing that you should know, and we know this from, from, from doing, from both the broadband mapping the federal government did, but from our own studies, there are some census tracts in Chicago where we've extensively mapped broadband use. Not availability, but use. The percentage of the population who has broadband at home. There are some census tracts where 10% of the population has broadband at home. Heavily poor, heavily Latino, heavily African American census tracts. It turns out that there's one internet provider likely in those areas. 
um, and because there's no competition between providers, the rates can be doubled than in the wealthier areas, community areas or census tracts in Chicago, where you can have up to three or four providers and the rates come way down. So there are many pieces of this puzzle and we don't care about them. Um, and, and so that is part of what I want to do. So anyway, a little bit that has spillover effects. And this is just showing the skill levels that um, also broadband use right here, broadband at home is generating um, skills. Do you understand what spyware and malware is? Would you explain? Go ahead. Explain. Well, I'm, I don't even, I'm very careful of any emails that tell me to click here for any to apply for some job, to read something, to open some document because I, or please click here to refresh your email address, your email password and account, or your bank information. And those get deleted very, very quickly. And I will my my web, but I I worry. And um, so there is there's a this is just showing the skills divide coming here. I just want to show you this um, part of our story um, about opportunity. This is for politics and the economy of broadband. Is silent. So it's the glass half full and half empty. It is half full because the opportunities economically and politically really are amazing. I think on the internet. It is half empty because there is incredible inequality right here in the United States. We might look to Egypt and say, the dictator fell with 15% of the country using the internet. But we could look right here in the United States and within area, in especially cities, and find incredible inequality in the United States. Um, and this, so this, uh, based on income, based on race ethnicity. So this is this is based on the 2009 current population survey. Um, they just literally a month ago released a 210. So we're going to update everything that you see. But nationwide, about 61% of the population has broadband at home. This means that 40% of Americans to us are are non-digital citizens. So your, your chance of being a digital citizen is only a little better than one in two nationwide in America right now. Um, in central cities, it's, um, it's about the same. In suburbs, it's the highest. In rural areas, it's lower, and that's largely because of you. So I just want to show you this real quickly. It's highlighted in yellow. Look how ugly my slides are, but that's OK. I'll show you my PowerPoint. This is by race, ethnicity, um, nationwide. So overall, 46% of African Americans have broadband at home, which is almost a 20-point difference from whites. Um, and Hispanics have the lowest um, access broadband at home. They don't. They not only face cost issues, but they face um, uh, skill and language barriers. And what something our work does, and I'm not going to show it to you here, but I have other papers. I wish I could come back and talk to you. Is that we ask people who don't have broadband at home why not, and they give us three primary answers. It's in the CPS, it's in the FCC, and it's our data that we we started those questions, and now actually the CPS and FCC copy us, which is good. Um, and the three primary answers are not interested, can't afford, cost or skill and difficulty, which can include language barriers. What we find is the people who are most likely to say not interested tend to be older, they tend to be wealthier. And where they live tends to be older areas and wealthier neighborhoods. People who say cost, not surprisingly, are poor, and they are African American, and they are Latino. And people who say skill tend to be disproportionately Latino, 
and um, and older. So the the why people aren't on has lots of different reasons, and not interest is actually a small piece of the puzzle, and cost is a very large piece. And I, I will just repeat one more time: the federal government calls broadband mapping, where a provider will provide broadband if you can afford it. There is no cost in the definition of universal broadband mapping according to the federal government right now, or the digital information highway that we that we hear. Yeah. So uh, on this point, so 40% of Americans who do not have broadband at home, yeah. a significant uh, percentage of that do not have because they have it in the office? Um, good question. Um, if we look, we map internet anywhere. You can see it. It's hot, much higher for internet anywhere. Everywhere we do, we map internet. Everything we do, we map internet use anywhere. Can connect at home, which can be slow, but to us digital citizens are highlighted in yellow. A lot of research from us and others have shown that to be a digital citizen, effective use, daily effective use, requires broadband at home. Because so many of the things that you need to do, you cannot do if you're at work. Yeah. Including, I would imagine, reading mm -hmm. all the news you'd want to um, online. Yeah. Um, but didn't, didn't the success of the Obama presidential campaign show that you could reach people without broadband? In other words, Chris Hughes, who was one of the co-founders of Facebook, was their new media advisor, and he was from the rural South, and he said that he knew that there was not good broadband penetration in the South, and that's where they reached people on their cell phones. And that seemed to have a very effective way of turning people out and getting people engaged. So, Well, and, and I think something we really are only a couple of years into the Facebook Twitter revolution, and the Facebook Twitter revolution is putting another layer on top of what I'm showing you right here. But as someone who is on Facebook, mm -hmm. it is only it is a tip of an iceberg that sends you to the New York Times. But but he but no. But 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 he was referring to something that was that they were using even before Facebook was very popular. I mean, in other words, I mean. They were using cell phones to reach people, or they couldn't reach them with broadband. They seem well, to be effective with that. Right. Well, they may they may be able to mobilize turnout, and so there may be forms. But when we talk about political participation, it's mm -hmm. it can be it can be just voting. That's mm -hmm. the easiest form, and it's the highest form, where sixty percent of Americans would vote in an election, twelve percent would pick money, and to attend a rally might be eight percent, and to work for a candidate might be. 3% and whole layers of that. Um, so, so that's a, but it's a, it's a good question. And I, I think it, part of this is a moving target. The iPad is a moving target as well. Facebook and Twitter is a moving target. Um, but, but realize that I just heard uh, Jimmy Wales talk at Iowa. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to walk up and get the very first question. Mm -hmm. I did get him to talk to me directly. And he gave were thousands, there were a thousand people in the audience. And Jimmy Wales obviously, that you know, Wikipedia is completely um, copyright free. You can take anything, put it right into your computer, and you don't need quotes. He has 70 workers with 100,000 volunteers nationwide, um, and he is creating his idea. There is to really create a u universal access to information. So it's the scribes. It's the scribes way back, but providing information for the world. And of course, the divide matters for him, and it would matter for us. Can we? 
could somebody use Wikipedia in a full way on a cell phone or a mobile device? And maybe maybe the tablets will be the way that we move. But anyway, yeah. I have a question as far as um, the Latinos that you mentioned, um, even the blacks. Uh, were they for any type of training? Well, part of what we're doing um, is that we are working with the um, we are working with the city of Chicago. Um, this study, this is national data, but we have data where we map broadband for Chicago. Every census tract in the 77 community areas, MacArthur Foundation has funded all of our mapping. Remember, it's use, internet use, and politics of the internet. And they have put in high-speed internet into five community areas, free wireless, and have created extensive training programs, and then we're doing the, the follow-up. So we're doing an evaluation. So this is policy. This I, I'm just saying, and we don't know the answer yet, because it just went in into the experiment just started in the file. I'm sure that you go to all the other training centers, you get these people to play around with the internet and they can engage your but I, they don't get that kind of access. I mean, they don't get the Cambridge public places. So I'm sure they don't get. Well, so no, this is a huge. This is a huge uh, initiative funded by MacArthur and um, the City of Chicago, um, and the Mayor Daly, by the way, who releases our studies on broad, on broadband and the internet in, Paul, in Chicago. He does not release email, and he, we were up uh, on the stage um, with this report. So it's okay. Let me. Yeah, let me show you a couple more on that. Yeah. Yeah, quick question. Um, if you look at this, you're looking at a cross-sectional layer. But if you're, you know, if you're looking at it over time, right? And we do use, we do look over I, time. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, if, if you were to do this, let's say with the telephone, and looked at the diffusion of innovation around the telephone, right? You, you'd probably have told a very similar kind of story. Yeah. Well, in some way similar though, right? Because there's an economic factor. There was an urban-rural factor with that uh, in terms of the uh, access to the telephone. Uh, same thing with television. Uh, those two factors did play into because of the cost of entry into television. Uh, the access to signals uh, was a big urban-rural difference for a long period of time, right? So is there reason to think uh, that and both of those kind of reached a, a pretty substantial saturation point, right? In terms of the number of people who had access to the telephone access to Well, and te the TV is what, at 90? Well, the telephone Yeah, I mean, but it, you know, it got about as far as you could kind of, kind of get, right? So is there any reason to think that, that this pattern is going to be substantially different than that and that the, the cure for these problems is largely a cure of time? Well, um, Pew has been tracking this in our data, and the CPS has been tracking this um, since, you know, since, since 1988. And we have seen especially an increase of this use anywhere. <coughs> and what this can be is people literally who could be at a friend's house or, you know, who, who can use it in an internet cafe or who could go online to, you know, print out their boarding pass and <coughs> this kind of use. The, the home broadband, though, has been hovering now for a number of years at rates that are fluctuating. They, not there's a difference here, and there's a number of things that play in. One, internet, internet extensive digital literacy, so broadband at home. Remember, effective use is um, is dependent on literacy, 
And so it's a reading intensive. This is very different than the radio or watching news. This is, it requires all sorts of skills to find the information, to read the information. And the other thing is, is that the, the notch to play the game is continually going up. And, and I should have, I'll show you, but you read about Kansas City, Kansas? Am I right? Is it Kansas City? But which one just got Google, which one was just picked by Google for the internet that's going to be 100 times faster than what we have? Is it Kansas City, Kansas, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, all, there were 1,100 cities competing nationwide for Google's, for Google's lightning fast new broadband. It's 100 times faster than what we currently call broadband. And, and part of this is that just like with any of these devices, you want the iPad, well, you'll have to pay for it. You want you want the faster broadband, and now, you know, well, we first had dial-up, and then you want broadband, and now we all want Kansas City's lightning-fast broadband, and the cities do, too. This is what I'm trying to tell you. The cities are so interested. So, um, and then what applications and what will be maybe in five years from now we will only be able to read if we have this lightning-fast kind of service? So... In those ways, I'm not sure if it really, if it does or doesn't. And I agree with you. There, are, I agree with you in every way. Well, it was, a, I was, it was a question. It wasn't. No, no, no. A, it I, wasn't the proposition. That my question was as I, to whether we could expect. Especially going away, and and we would argue because of the escalating costs and because of the the skills and literacy barriers that it isn't the same. What was the maximum newspaper penetration when newspapers were? Yeah, it's the same issue to a degree. You had to be literate in order to right. justify that. I don't know that answer. Uh, but I don't, you know, it was not 98%. And by the way, if I can, I'll get to my other slides, but this is why we call it digital literacy, because our parallel mm -hmm. is that to be for citizenship in the United States today, effective citizenship, equality of opportunity, economic opportunity, and equality of political access. I'm not talking about equality of outcomes. I'm talking about equality of opportunity, access to information, choices, making and informed choices requires digital literacy. And it requires to us broadband access. And in a similar way in the 19th century, if you didn't, if you were illiterate, you were denied a quality of opportunity in terms of getting an education, in terms of political participation. And so it, it is a relevant um, and it is a relevant how do you how do you fit into the, the, the mosaic the fact that Wikipedia is the fifth most visited website in the world? Do you know that it is the only nonprofit among the, the, the top ten? And, and the and the others ahead of it are Google and Microsoft and Yahoo right. and now Facebook. They, well, Facebook just displaced them. And so Google Facebook is now number four instead of Wikipedia. But Wikipedia is about reading. It's not about oh, images. It's but a, and it you know how they count that? Let her respond. But I can still know that even if Wikipedia is the, is, and, I, and I, I did, I was just talking with Jeremy Wales, and I just know more about Wikipedia. In fact, Wikipedia is my hero. It's my model for digital citizenship because you can get information about so many topics that you don't know. You can inform, you're having a debate at the dinner table, you disagree, somebody stands up, we go to Wikipedia. We, I mean, we literally <coughs> have changed. I don't stand up. 
um, and we just know that Kansas City won, but um, it really created a huge headlines. The mayor of Duluth waded through an ice stream shoreline and plunged into the waters of Lake Superior to draw attention <laughs> to a city's bid. Not to be outdone, the mayor of Topeka, Kansas, issued a proclamation saying, changing the city's name to Google Kansas, <laughs> at least for the month of March, and these other cities were frantically posting YouTube videos. They want to be the city with broadband that's 100 times faster than any other city. And this is the problem. Is it the same as television? Is it the same as radio? Well, the bar, the bar just changed again. How much will this cost? Who will get it next? Well, where will you see the difference in 100 times greater than they have now? Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't know yet because the applications haven't, haven't even been created for what we could do. And I, I, I honestly, I, I don't know. But I think it will. Um, I'm telling you, as they develop the entertainment, the social networking, along with that comes these applications that contribute to the for, to the political participation, the communication networks, and to the and to the job. Is Google's premise that this is going to become standard? Well, I've heard that the other countries have um, there's nothing as slow as the U.S. Yes, that we are really slow. There's nothing as slow as the U.S. In terms of uh, the other advanced industrialized countries were like ranked in the. I don't know, for 15th, 20th in the world. And it's sad because, of course, you know, when the elected officials come to Iowa, they tell us, we're going to build a high-speed train between Iowa City and Chicago. And then I raise my hand in the class and say, and how fast will your train go? And then they tell me, maybe 79 miles an hour. And I say, but that's nowhere near what a high-speed train means. So why do we, Americans, have low training, low speed trains and low speed networks So something? Anyway, it's a circus-like atmosphere out here with these cities, but there is a serious message underlying it, um, and it, it's that it matters to cities um, for these reasons. Um, uh, and I can just, this is a little bit about my parallel, digital literacy and literacy and opportunity. Um, and, and it's a broad claim, and I cannot prove it with historical data but I can suggest it as a parallel of how important what we're talking about is if you believe that digital literacy um, has these benefits. Federal government is focusing on availability and access, not use, so cost as a barrier is not part of the definition of the problem. Anybody around here knows that how you define the problem is key to what solutions you get, right? So if the problem has no cost in the definition, then the solutions will be different. Pointing out what I showed you before, extensive inequalities. Um, we are at a historic turning point. Never before has a president ever talked about broadband. And twice we've heard Obama and presidential addresses talk about broadband. Um, never before has so much federal money been invested in broadband. Um, and so we are at a crossroads. We're moving. Um, but we would argue that uh, federal initiatives have fallen short and the American cities have fallen behind. And here I'll just show you. Oh, awful font. I so apologize. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were two rounds of the federal, the VTOP money that comes to the FCC that was given to um, a whole bunch of uh, cities all around the country um, and states. 90% of the federal funds have gone to funding availability in rural areas. So far, less than 10% have gone to to any cities. Um, and I point out that 84% of Americans live in metropolitan areas. Um, while there's, I know, these are inequalities that the news media, again, we talk about. I love to talk about the story the news won't write. 
Um, and this would be a story that the news won't write despite my bad font. Um, so even though we have adoption rates in urban areas that are 10% higher than rural, um, there are many, many more un underserved people in metropolitan areas than in rural areas in numbers. Um, when you look at that, um, and here's where we can say in some census tracts in Chicago, less than 10%, you can't see that all, has um, broadband. Is this a matter of availability or use that you're talking about? Right, right that, that right here, there are data right here is, is, is use. It's available all over the city. There's 100% availability in and Chicago. And is the 90% of money going in to make it accessible rather than used? Yes. So it's, it's a different issue as far as the government is concerned. Well, the... the They're focusing on having the mechanism in place to get broadband as opposed to encouraging people to use broadband that is already the 10% of the money that has gone to urban areas has been for training and has been for some exploration in, in, um, in free wireless networks. And so when Chicago was the only city that had data like ours, um, and they could argue that if census tracts had over 40% of the population that was offline, that was parallel to rural areas, that they were making a bid for this money. So in small, isolated places, we saw the money. But, um, well, and then, then this is basically turning to the cities. So, okay. Uh, I want to, I mean, I know that <coughs> several of you have already asked questions, but if there are other questions related to the presentation, or uh, I would love for you to do five minutes on why Iowa, especially the media dimension, as you were as you were explaining it. Do you want to talk about that? Just, just yeah. one question, um, uh, because uh, I guess uh, outside the United States, this map uh, or this analysis could be a lot worse. Or do you have any international <coughs> information about what's going on? in the underdeveloped world about the access to broken and digital citizenship or, or use? There's obviously the World Bank has been collecting data. Um, some countries are far ahead of the United States in trying to provide you know, universal broadband. So the goal here is is universal broad, effective use. Not, not yeah. that you have to use it. Obviously there'll be people who will never turn on television and never listen to radio and never want a public education. They'll probably homeschool their kids. But um, the goal from our research would be universal broadband in an effective <laughs> way, not just availability. Um, and I do know that we're ranked, as it was just said before, on slower. We're ranked like 18th in the world for the population. 18th of the world, 18th or 20th for just the percentage of our population that is online. So we're not. Yeah, but I think the inequality the of third effective use might be worse. Oh, I'm sure. Well, I think access. Yeah. I, access, yeah. I'm sure. As I said, I know that in Egypt it was 15% um, that could have access to the internet. So I'm, I'm sure these inequalities are. You know, are are, there, there's all degrees. Was the issue in Egypt access or or use? And remember, use requires skill. Remember, I showed mm -hmm. you the yep. skill divide and literacy. Yeah. And that's a biggie. Yeah. I don't know much about it. Again, I study. Mm -hmm. I'm, I can tell you, I use, the, I use the international community as a baseline against which I study in Do you have an idea why so few women um, contribute to it? 
Well, I wasn't surprised. Other than that they're involved in other volunteers. Guess why I wasn't surprised one bit. I have been doing polling myself. And I have been using extensive Pew data and current population survey data since 1988. Every year, tracking extensively. And we found a gender divide just in use of the internet and reading online news up until just a couple years ago. Men were more likely. And then it was closing just in terms of access and use. And now they say women are actually more avid email users um, and maybe more avid Facebook users. But men? Um, still are much more likely to use the internet for politics today um, in terms of contributing um, to to blogs and in discussion groups um, and Twitter but <coughs> also so for content and um, and also so we've been watching it for a long we time. Had, we had one of the people, one of those 70 employees of Wikipedia here earlier today and uh, she said that the typical Wikipedia editor, which is the job of, you know, it's the core job of editing pieces and deciding what goes and what doesn't and that kind of thing, is a relatively young, unmarried man who doesn't make much and who spends, in many cases, as much as six hours a day volunteering to do this, doing this purely for his own pleasure. And they are skewed heavily in the uh, in, in the sciences, and they have a lot of knowledge in that area, and there are fewer that have knowledge in what we would think of as the humanities. And if you want to know about Star Trek, you can find out absolutely anything at all. The most developed parts of Wikipedia reflect the interests of this group of people. And so every character who ever appeared in any Star Trek episode has a Wikipedia site. It's time that it's credit, right? There are all kinds of studies, let me check this course in business school, around how men are followed more on Twitter, men are given credit more. I've ghosted my own account and put a male's picture there. My follower account will spike with the exact same content. But an attractive 18-year-old yeah, woman or a 35-year-old man, and that content goes way up. But basically, any other way, you don't get the credit for what you publish. And on Wikipedia, they're much likely, if you put, I've also tried feminine names and masculine names to contribute content, and they'll kill you a feminine name. They'll, they'll call you a soft puppet, they'll push you off really fast. Right. There's a culture of harassment that is underreported dramatically for women online. Right, and obviously there's so many downsides to the internet. And I, I, I only spoke the two positives. I am a victim of identity theft. Um, it happened in 2010, and then yeah. somebody you know, who had tolbert.carolyn at yahoo.com email address and had my social security number and opened credit cards in my name. And then the whole world of crime. I mean, I was heightenly aware to how the internet, and I went to my local sheriff and reported, and he had this big box, and it had like, Manila folders, and he said these are the other identity theft victims. And just looking at this fellow, I knew they would never, never find the person <laughs> who had taken my social security and my identity. Well, it's just like the real world. The problem is, is the piece, I think it was in the Atlantic, they said they're the, you know, never betters, ever wasers, and never worsers around the internet. And I'm an ever wasser. It's the same as it ever was, right? Gender counts, you know, authority counts. A lot of your data shows that money and income and educational count. But you know, there are a lot of people who are either completely utopian about it or completely doomsday about it. It's pretty much the same as real life. John, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, it's a, maybe it's a little out of order political question, but supposing one had a hypothesis that 
Tea Party people really aren't as bright as others. Will it be possible to look at the districts that elected Tea Party people to see what the percent of internet um, uh, usage is? And maybe they indeed are uh, mentally uh, compromised because they don't have access. Let's say this is a hypothetical hypothesis, but could you get it? The Tea Party, I want to learn more about the Tea Party, and this is something that I haven't studied as much. I know my, my colleague um, at the University of Washington has a number of studies on it, and they're using the internet quite extensively for what, Your for colleagues are or the Tea Party? No, the Tea Party, am I correct? That the that's internet that's is, that's right? yes, is very important yes. in the Tea Party as it was for Obama in 2008, starting with so, Howard Dean, by the way. They're actually generally more highly, more higher educated Okay. But they tend to be more libertarian. More libertarian. Than, than just straight reaction. But very interesting if they had this internet as a piece because these effective mobilization, which happened, you know, with Egypt too. You know, I, I was talking to Gary King here, your your colleague here at Harvard, and he said that, that, that this fellow from Google, this Google employee in Egypt said, did you intend to break down the, the, the dictator of Egypt? He said, yes, we did. And we were going to do it this way, this way, this way, this way, using the internet and Facebook, just like how Obama intended to use the internet for his 208 campaign. Yeah. So I have a question about education policy. And I'm curious to know if there's a federal um, task force that is operating under Arnie Duggan, for example, or if it's state by state or even district by district, in which um, schools are integrating digital literacy into elementary school education, high school education, et cetera, because it strikes me that part of what you're talking about with use is really demand, and that is these kids gain digital digital literacy, and I know my kids know more about the internet than I do, um, that there will then be this spike in demand and will have wider access. If they don't face barriers of you know, needing to pay rent and eat or, or what kind well, of access they have. Well, but I wonder because, you know, they're willing, they would be willing right. to forego we'll some of the food in order to have <laughs> access to the So, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it's an important component for them. But yeah. anyway, but I'm I, curious, you know, if you know anything about how policy works in that area. Well, I do know, and I don't know enough about, I, education is a huge, anybody who studies education policy, I admire, just like healthcare policy, yeah. huge, gigantic webs and networks of policy, just like the internet itself. That has all of these webs and networks, um, and so I do know that there was money for teacher training um, and for access. But I also know there's just in incredible inequalities in public schools based on 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 availability. Of, that's, of, that's been my thinking. I just wondering if that was starting to shift or not. So. Um, and es uh, especially classrooms where you want to have all the students have laptops or all the students have clickers so they can they can be voting and participating and the results can show up and these kind of things are, you know in school districts where they the per student per you know amount of allocated is fifteen thousand dollars that's a lot easier than if it's the base amount. I do want you to talk just briefly about <coughs> about the idol thing because I think that really some of the things you were telling me before we came in here are really fascinating. Now <coughs> for instance the reason that the Republicans are having such a hard time getting anyone to declare that they want to be president. If you would talk about that, because I remember Iowa is the first, before New Hampshire, there is Iowa. There's Ohio? Uh, no, Ohio is, 
So, um, so, so if you go take a peep, and I wish I could send you all the copy. Actually, I have some extras in my garage. Um, why Iowa? Um, um, with the University of Chicago Press, December 2010. Um, and what we look at in that book is largely the 208 um, presidential nomination process, but also going back from 1970 to now. And one of the things that we argue is that, um, that the influence of Iowa has a lot to do with mass media expectations, and that candidates who exceed how well the mass media says they're going to do are rewarded with momentum. And momentum means more media coverage and donations and all of the things, as I think um, Bush Sr. called it the big mo, which means the big momentum. We need the big mo coming out of, of Iowa. This is why Carter in the 1970s, who was a no-name, first decided to invest all of his money in Iowa. I want you to know he came in second undecided. So it's not winning Iowa that matters. It's doing better than expected, according to the media. Um, Obama came out, Clinton was the frontrunner, going into the general election, and Romney, on the Republican side, was the frontrunner. And both of them, Iowa hurt in different ways. Obama exceeded media expectations coming out of Iowa, and with that <coughs> came, in fact, our poll, I uh, co-directed the University of Iowa Hawkeye poll for three years with David Bradlosk, and our poll that was done in late October was the first Iowa poll of likely caucus goers showing um, Obama tied with Clinton in the Iowa caucuses, and it was from there that things went downhill for Clinton and went uphill. Did Clinton make a strategic decision not to invest heavily in Iowa? She did invest heavily, and actually our data shows that she spent heavily, um, in fact, that you can't win Iowa unless you do invest heavily. Uh, Edwards, Clinton, and Obama invested heavily, but Obama had a much better ground game, and to win Iowa requires having a ground game. It requires, turnout is normally 6% of registered voters. It is January. It could be minus 20. Just getting there is going to be hard, and it's not just voting. You have to stand in a room. It's a it's a party business meeting. It could take hours. Turning <coughs> out your base is one of the hardest things that a candidate has to do. Um, turnout in 2012 was a remarkable 12%. Of registered voters is a remarkable still. Try c calling them. It's like finding it's like finding a needle in a haystack. But still doing better than expected based on the media is why <coughs> Iowa has always been important. What we argue is that in the last 10 years. Iowa has become increasingly important in picking presidents, this phenomenon. And by the way, Huckabee, you know, upset Romney in the Iowa caucuses, weakened Romney going into the Massachusetts primary. Um, and so, although, so it can happen in lots of different ways, but if you, and Edwards, poor Edwards, did worse than expected. He was expected to have won Iowa or tied Iowa. Oh, and he did Proving worse. The wisdom of the well, Iowa. And, and so, and I don't, well, what I'm saying, we say why Iowa. How many people live in Iowa? How many people live in Iowa? Three million. Three million. Three million. Three million. Three million. Three million. So if Iowa is this important, you're saying three million people. You're giving three million people this choice. Oh, three million percent of pick presidents. But what we argue is that we, we use this word punctuated equilibrium, saying that in the last 10 years, the role of Iowa has increased 
exponentially in <coughs> taking precedence because it's not just the mainstream media anymore. It's now this whole the internet, the the, the new, all of the media. The me so on caucus day, if you had Googled on caucus day and just put in the word Iowa and caucus, there were forty three thousand stories on Iowa caucus day. That's the message that's going okay, out. There, it is eight months now until the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> right, so and who is who is the most organized in, in, of the Republicans in Iowa? Where do you see the organizations? So there's two things that are going on. One, the caucuses have, they will, the Republicans will be in Iowa. The caucuses have always mattered more on the Democratic side than the Republican side. So there's a little bit of a party difference. They also have a different system because they're winner take all on the Republican side and the Democrats are proportional. Um, and um, so they're, they're, and they're different too. In the, in the Democratic caucus, you stand up to the, to, and you move to the part of the room where your candidate is, go over there. And on, in the Republican side, it is a party business meeting, it's a secret ballot. So they are very different, and they're different media shows. Um, but also, if this phenomenon is really happening, like we explained, with this front runner being exacerbated by the new media and the internet, no one wants to be the front runner. No one wants to be the one that's going to be leapfrogged over by a Huckabee or who, who do we have? There's so many. Michelle Bachman um, and others. So, and we really haven't seen, we have seen visits. And one of the things that's the biggest predictor are the number of visits in Iowa. You can see this. This, is, this matters. This, um, and so we have seen visits, and I haven't collected that data yet. And we're, we're just kind of watching. Um, but visits matter. Is Sarah Palin a, a visitor? I think she came once, but I don't think Sarah Palin is going to do Iowa. I, I don't feel like this is going to be a story of Sarah Palin. But we do have um, a number of people, right, including um, Trump. Right? Trump? <laughs> is it Trump? Is Donald Trump visiting Iowa? I think he is. <laughs> okay. Listen, we're out of time. Thank you very much, Carol.